Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's episode features Anna Sawa, and this was recorded live at the Edinburgh Festival in front of another full house. Uh, the last two obviously have been recorded there, Gordon Brown at the McEwen Hall and then Anas at the wonderful debating hall in the Gilda Balloon. And the next episode will be recorded there with Joanna Cherry. That's on Monday the 22nd of August at 2pm. Obviously, I'm at the Edinburgh Festival for the whole run doing my comedy show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right in the Evening at 8pm at the Pleasance Courtyard. And and thank you so much to all of you who've been. It's already been the most enjoyable Edinburgh Festival I've ever had. Uh, I usually get a show ready for Edinburgh and then tour it. I've done it the other way around this year. And effectively, that's right, a whole new show anyway. Um, so um, if you've already seen it earlier in the tour, it's now completely different. In fact, it's even changed since the start of the festival quite a lot, which is just great fun, obviously, with everything that's going on with the Tory leadership contest and the issues that will continually affect the Labour Party and everything that's happening in Scotland. It's, it's just been a wonderful experience. So thank you if you've come along. Um, and yes, uh, the guests, once we return to London, which I announced on the um, Gordon Brown, which, my word, I mean, the messages I've had about that, obviously people get in touch about every episode with their own thoughts and some of them message me directly. I get emails to uh, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I almost forgot it. And obviously on Twitter. I mean, I can't remember the last time I had this many messages. It may well have broken the record. I mean, it was just uh, a very, very special one. So if you haven't listened to the Gordon Brown one yet, what are you mucking about at? So the next few guests on the 22nd of August, as I said, uh, Joanna Cherry, and that will be live at the Edinburgh Festival at the Gilded Balloon. And then once we're back in London, here we go. And some of these, I don't know if I've announced one of these yet. So listen out because you might not be aware of some of these. The 19th of September, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. That will be a very rare double bill with two megastars who obviously have left the BBC and joined LBC. I can't, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask them about. John Sopel, by the way, wrote a brilliant biography of Tony Blair called Tony Blair the Modernizer, which I remember getting with some pocket money before Labour had even won in 1997. And of course, Emily Maitlis' interview with Prince Andrew. Oh my word. Particularly if you've listened, well, regardless of if you listen, but the Sam McAllister episode just a few weeks ago was superb about that. Sam's the producer that made that interview happen. And the details she gave us are wonderful. On the 3rd of October, Mick Lynch. On the 17th of October, Matt Hancock. And on the 7th of November, I'm not sure I've announced this yet, David Dimbleby, the longest serving host of Question Time ever, one of the most incredible political broadcasters, election nights for so many eras, so many different nights. He was the man taking us through all that. That is going to be incredible. And then on the 5th of November, Rachel Reeves. So, so many phenomenal guests and so many more to be added. But to today's guest, Anasawa, who when he did the show in London, really stole the show. And he, he does a similar thing towards the end. Um, and as then, just such a great person to talk to. Very thoughtful, very generous of spirit and very emotional at times. And he's very honest about uh, the issues that he's faced and that his family's faced. And he still manages to do all that with such a sense of humour and such a sense of cheekiness. Um, <laughs> and on top of all that, obviously, uh, deep political skills. But this, uh, as always, is great talking to Anas. And, and I almost forget, there's a part in this where he says he's 39. And it's not that he doesn't look 39, but we're the same age. And sometimes when I'm sat opposite a politician that is the same age as me or younger, it's a similar thing with football. Once politicians start to be your age or younger, you start thinking... What have I done with my life? You know, these people are really getting on and making a difference in the world. 
And it's remarkable that he's achieved so much at such a relatively young age and that he has a, a presence and a gravitas that, that really belie the fact that he's still in his 30s. Um, anyway, if I keep talking, by the time you listen to this, he'll be in his 40s. So enjoy, recorded live at the Edinburgh Festival, a very special hour with the leader of Scottish Labour, Anna Sawa. Uh, welcome to a very special edition of The Political Party. Today's guest is someone that I've interviewed before in London, but this is the first time I've interviewed him uh, at uh, the Edinburgh Festival, or indeed in Scotland at all. He is the charismatic, handsome leader of Scottish Labour. If the latest opinion polls are to be believed, he is the most popular politician in Scotland. Let's see if today's audience agrees. Please raise the roof for the wonderful Anasawa! Matt, how are you? Thank you very much. <coughs> and that's just, uh, is that double dinner? It's a linen shirt, I think. Uh, are okay. you, you had to go to my fashion sense last time as well, Matt, when I was on the show, I remember. But I, sh- I owe you an apology, actually, because um, I, t- I told Matt he'd put on a bit of COVID weight last time <laughs> I was on his show, so I think it's only fair I should credit for how trim and smart you're looking. For this show. Isn't he looking fantastic? Oh, wow. That was, <laughs> that was far from overwhelming. <laughs> well, I've just, you know, I, I'm, I don't know what, this isn't about me, it's about you. Uh, and I just wanted to clear up, because people might have thought you were wearing double denim, and that would have been a bad thing, as we all know. Terrible thing. But linen and, and jeans, that's lovely. Uh, and, and obviously, this is, you're doing more shows at the Edinburgh Festival than I am this year. Not quite, although I did a um, show with you last week where I was on the stage with four comedians and the Scottish National said I was still the biggest joke on stage. So that was uh, a bit of a challenge. Although I feel I should pick up with you on one other thing, Matt. Okay. Which is, uh, and people in the audience can tell me whether they think is, this is harassment or not, is in the last show, Matt, in the build-up to the last show, you kept, every time you advertised it, you kept putting a peach emoji <laughs> in the advertisement. Um, and anyone that is not aware of these things, the peach emoji means something inappropriate for most people. You then followed it up with lots of messages in which you included a peach emoji at the end of your message. And then the week after the show, you sent me a massive bag of peaches (laughs) uh, to the house, which I think is bordering on harassment. But then I realized perhaps it was a joke because right on the side of the bag of peaches, it was emblazoned in huge letters, contains pork gelatine. So I thought Matt perhaps hadn't realized the cultural significance of the peaches he sent me. Oh, hold on a second. It's a thought that counts. It's a thought that counts. My, never... son, my son Adam's in the audience, actually, and he loves these fizzy peaches, but his mum wouldn't let him eat them. It was terrible. Right, firstly, I did not realise they contained any pork. <laughs> I bought them from Amazon like a good lefty and sent them in all good conscience, so apologies for that. The peach thing, obviously, is a joke that you started or that Scottish Labour did, because when you were dancing, Jackie Bailey was always putting the peach on the thing, so I thought I was joining in with a cool joke. I didn't realise I was wrong. <laughs> maybe not. After the first one, maybe 12 messages in, perhaps it was a bit more inappropriate. I just think, you know, and as you'll know if you've seen my show, if something's funny, do it to death until it's no longer funny. And your dancing is that funny. <laughs> so you're around a lot of the festival, is the point I was making. Do you feel that um, politicians should be more visible at a festival like this? Are you comfortable going on to lots well, of different there's, there's stages? Been a, there's been a lot of chat recently about whether politicians are attention seekers or not. <laughs> and and, 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 and my, my answer to that is, actually, we're all attention seekers. I'm an attention seeker. Uh, politicians all seek attention, that's part of the job description and I think any political leader that's not seeking attention is not doing the job right. What you do with that attention you seek uh, I think is important and look you've got to find creative ways of communicating with people and if that's being at the festival, it's being doing shows then fantastic and I think you've seen lots of interesting news stories coming out of uh, lots of different political interviews that have happened uh, over the course of the Edinburgh Festival. I think that's a good thing. And uh, are there any comedians you wouldn't share a stage with? Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Sadowitz. Oh, that's a controversial one. I think that's best avoided, Matt. He's Certainly almost good. as inappropriate as you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd send me peaches, put it that way. <laughs> 
But it's good to see you again. Thank and, you so much for having us. You are doing very well. I, I know politicians, well, politicians have a strange relationship with opinion polls because obviously, as we're always told, the only poll that matters is the one on polling day. But in between, it does give you a barometer. And a few polls have put you as the most popular party leader in Scotland. Uh, do you feel like the most popular party leader in Scotland? And, and do you uh, think those polls are correct? I'm a politician in the Scottish Labour Party, so it's always important to have humility when it comes to these kind of uh, <laughs> things. Um, so you're right, the only uh, opinion polls that matter are the ones that, in terms of elections. I think one thing that I think we have done is I think we have, and I've said this before, I think we stopped Armageddon in terms of the Scottish Parliament election last year when we first took over and Labour was polling at around 14% in the polls uh, and people said we were going to come forth in the election. Uh, I then think we, I think we got credibility back I think we've brought likability back, but I'm not in this to be the most liked politician. I want us to win elections so we can change people's lives. And so the test for me is not going to be whether people like me or not. It's going to be whether people believe in me enough um, to be able to run this country and change this country for the better. And for that, we've got a massive mountain to climb. And as I say, we've got to do that with humility. Uh, and there's not one difficult conversation I'm not willing to have. There's not one part of the country that I'm not willing to travel to and talk to people to try and recognise that right across this country, yes, we've been pitted into different tribes in two referendums, whether that was yes or no, or leave and remain. But I genuinely believe there is a core across this country where there is common cause, where there is things that we can agree on. And wouldn't it be great to have a politics for a while and a parliament for a while and a government for a while that focused on things that united us as a country so we could change our country for the better rather than using things that divide us in order to stop this country making progress. What's your political view of the SNP then? Because some people in Scottish Labour and in Scotland might say they are a fundamentally progressive party. They're, they're nationalists, but they're essentially social democrats. They're someone that on a lot of issues Labour people would agree with. Other Labour people say, well, they are fundamentally regressive because they want to break apart a union that, in Labour's view, works for the people of Scotland and there is no way we can work with them. How would you define that? I think, I think the first thing to do is... What we shouldn't do as a political party and what no political leader should do is somehow assume that everything their opponents do is wrong and everything they do is right. The bottom line is we have lost elections in Scotland um, regularly. We're now coming up to almost 15 years in opposition, 12 years in opposition across the UK. And there comes a point where we have to be honest and say we lost because we weren't good enough. And the challenge we've got is we've got to make sure that yes, we expose the failures of the SNP and the Tories. Yes, we hope that people understand that they deserve to lose, but we've also got to deserve to win ourselves. And that means having a positive alternative about what we can do either across the UK or here in Scotland. The challenge I would say to my UK colleagues uh, and people across the UK is the SNP are not the Labour Party in Scotland with a saltire. Um, they do not believe in the Labour Party. Part of their raison d'etre is to destroy the Labour Party because they believe it helps them achieve independence. Obviously, I would have a very different view uh, to that. But also, there's nothing Labour about saying that we want to end what has been a successful. There have been flaws, of course there have. There are still things we can do better, of course we can. But we have a fundamentally redistributive union that is about pooling and sharing our resources across the UK and, yes, promoting wealth and making sure people can, can succeed but using the fruits of that wealth to redistribute that wealth across the country, power across the country, opportunity across the country, so we can fight poverty and fight inequality. That is a fundamental United Kingdom principle that, yes, has been weakened by the Tories, but that doesn't mean we should split the thing up. It means we should boot these Tories out and get a redistributive, modernising, reforming UK led by a Labour Prime Minister and Keir Starmer. So let's take the next election. Given the scale of the swing required for Labour to even get a one-seat majority in Westminster. Labour winning the next election, even with yours and Keir's relative popularity, is still a huge, huge task. So let's say Labour are the largest party and the SNP is still doing well in Scotland, and none of this is beyond the realms of, of what might actually happen. And Keir Starmer says to you, look, I, I know I said that I would roll out a coalition with the Scottish... And I said, on the verge of becoming Prime Minister. Would you agree with this some is the key, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Would you agree with some sort of deal? The interesting thing is, he's not going to say that. He'll sound like that, but he's not going to say that. <laughs> uh, because Keir gets the fact 
that he wants to be Prime Minister of all parts of the United Kingdom, and that includes Scotland. He understands that he has to have a contract directly with the people of Scotland, and the SNP shouldn't pretend as they're some kind of conduit or the middle person between our relationship between the UK Labour Party and I hope a UK Labour government and the Scottish people. And he also understands that you can't want to lead and change the UK when one of the partners in any UK government wants to break up the UK. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. And actually, I think too many of our political leaders across the UK have got themselves in a really crazy position on this because it's really pretty simple. The simple reality is this. We can either have a Labour government across the UK or we can have a Tory government across the UK. And if we ended up in a situation, of course we're going to try to have a majority Labour government, but if we ended up in a situation where we were short of a majority, the SNP have a simple choice. They can either go to the Parliament and vote through having a Labour government, or they can vote having a Tory government. And I dare them to vote for a Tory government, and they can see how Scotland reacts. We don't have to have a deal with the SNP. We don't have to have a coalition with the SNP. What we can do is be a minority Labour government across the country if we, if we need to be. But of course, we're campaigning for a Labour majority, and that includes winning seats here in Scotland. We hear a lot about the Red Wall, and it annoys me sometimes when you have the UK media bubble obsessed about the Red Wall, and they think about the Red Wall as being the north of England. The first Red Wall to fall was Scotland. And unless we rebuild the Red Wall in Scotland, we aren't getting a UK-wide Labour government. So why then? I mean, you're, you're the most popular party leader in Scotland, as we... I'm happy for you to continue to say that, Matt. <laughs> but when the poll comes that doesn't show that, please talk about the one before it. Of course. <laughs> you used to be the most yeah. popular... You were for a fortnight the most popular leader in Scotland. Why then do all the opinion polls say that you're the most popular, but the, the party still has a way to go to overtake the SNP? Well, again, we've got to be honest about the scale of the challenge. So um, I, th I think it would be wrong to say to people if they've looked at the Labour Party in the last 50 years, years and thought they're not good enough, they haven't offered us um, anything that we can really get behind and support and overnight we're going to change that. That would be um, wishful thinking. There is no shortcut to us rebuilding our relationship with people in Scotland. There is no shortcut for us to be a credible party of government again. That requires us to do the hard work and I'm absolutely determined to do it. I'm absolutely determined to give this country a Labour Party worthy of the name and a Labour Party that they can confidently and proudly vote for, not hold their nose and vote for, so we can change this country together. And, and that's a big, big ask, but I'm determined to do it. Now, there's some independence that you're against. There are other forms of independence that you're in favour of. <laughs> I know where this is going. Go on. You're talking about the, the one day of the year when I get more abuse than any other, and that is the day of Pakistani Independence Day. Yes. Um, and anyone that's on social media will have seen uh, that yesterday. I, of course, wished my uh, Indian friends happy Independence Day today. And you get some, not all, and I, I'll give credit to not all uh, nationalists are angry and not all of them uh, try and conflate the issue with others. But it does annoy me when people try and pretend that somehow Scotland was a victim of empire, when in actual fact Scotland was at the heart of the empire. Uh, and I'll give you one practical example of that. My father became the governor of the, the Punjab um, and I went for his swearing-in ceremony. Uh, and it was the first time I'd been to Pakistan in 15 years. And you go into this uh, grand hall and right above at the top is pictures of every single governor that has ever been of the Punjab. Um, I'm going to get told off for not saying Punjab. I'm, it's actually Punjab <laughs> rather than Punjab, so I'll say Punjab. <laughs> And it, it includes those that are the post-Raj times, but also the governors in the Raj times. And I was struck by the number of Scottish names that were governors of the Punjab um, in the Raj times. Almost 50% of the governors of the Punjab were Scots during colonisation and at the height of the British Empire. So let's not pretend, regardless of your view on Scottish independence, let's not pretend or conflate that Scotland is somehow colonised or a victim. It was at the heart of the empire. That's why Glasgow is often referred to as the second city of the empire. And the other reason why it's offensive is there are, my own family included, lots of families across the country, either from uh, Pakistani heritage or in Indian heritage, who have lost family members in that pursuit of independence and during that partition. I, I lost members of my family 
My ancestors died in the struggle for independence in Pakistan. Literally, for some of my family members, their neighbors were the very ones that murdered them during the partition. So to try and conflate the campaign for independence, which is legitimate for those that believe in Scottish independence, to try and conflate that, I think, with India and Pakistan, does the Scottish independence movement eh, no favours, but also as a rewriting of history that is not good for Scotland or the UK. But most people who might vote for independence or vote for the SNP probably don't conflate it. I mean, we're talking about yeah, yeah, that, activists. That, and, that's, or... and that's why yesterday what I referred to is eh, angry, but not all nationalists. There's lots of nationalists who have recognised Scotland's historic role in the slave trade, for example, with uh, Africa. If you look at a lot of the street names in Glasgow, they're very. Uh, a lot of those street names are related to uh, the slave industry and, and also the height of empire. So many people uh, recognise that you can't conflate the two. But sadly, there is always an angry minority that wants to shout these kind of slogans, and I don't think they understand the historic significance of it. But just as you can't conflate... They got pretty heavy so all of a sudden, so... This well, is no, a comedy is... festival, right? Yes, but it's also a, a, an informed political discussion on us. And I'm sure I speak for the audience that when they're sat there in almost total silence, that's because they're hanging on your every word <laughs> and are so entertained they can't make any noise. We're hoping that. Well, that's my version. <laughs> that's what I tell myself after a lot of my gigs. Anyway, so... Um... But just on that, I've got a, a great story about... Um, I was out campaigning in Fife during the independence referendum. Uh, and I was out with Joanne Lamont, and uh, Joanne was the leader at the time, we were out campaigning in Fife. And this is not a reflection on the people of Fife, I should say the wonderful kingdom of Fife, if there's any Fifers in the audience. But I was out campaigning in the independence referendum uh, in Fife, and there's a guy, and this uh, guy rolled down his uh, window, and he shouted at me, uh, and I apologize for the language here. Uh, he shouted, he says, fuck off back to where you came from. And I, sh I couldn't resist shouting back at the guy, and I said to him, where do you think that is, pal? And he said, England, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, I was really happy. I thought, yes, I've made it. I've made it. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, he was wrong on every count, wasn't he? Like, it wasn't but, even half right. Yeah, but he couldn't exactly say Pollock Shields in Glasgow, could he? <laughs> I mean, that sort of thing. I mean, I, I realise it's funny, but he's still othering you, isn't he? He's still... There's still an element of... I don't know if it's, you could call it racism, but there's a sort of jingoistic xenophobia underneath. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to tar an entire political movement with that. I think that would be, I think that would be unfair. But are there elements, of course? And I think, there's a, I think the other challenge you've got is... And again, this is a, a reflection on UK politics. I think it's been convenient for lots of people to think that racism or division or this othering all started with the Brexit referendum. Yeah. Actually, it started well before that. And uh, I would argue that the independence referendum, Brexit, um, even the Boris Johnson government, all of them are symptoms of what happened rather than the actual wider cause. There is an underlying anger, I think, amongst the public that they don't believe our institutions work for them. The banking crisis is one example. The cost of living crisis is going to be another. And the challenge we have is people that believe in the politics of unity rather than the politics of division and the politics of hope rather than the politics of despair is we've got to give people a positive alternative that doesn't feed off their anger, but actually mitigates and, and answers some of that anger and frustration. That's a big challenge for us, I think, come the next election. Have you ever raised this with Nicola Sturgeon? Have you ever said to her? Because I know there's an informal element to, to all politics. Not much, to be honest. You've never said to there's, her, there's, look, some there's, of your supporters are really, some of it's pretty severe. And do you get the sense that she takes it seriously? Look, I think, I, think, I mean, you know, I, I led the cross-party group on tackling Islamophobia in the last parliament. I lead the cross-party group on tackling racial and religious prejudice in, in this parliament. And I think when it comes to those issues, I like to think that those issues go beyond party politics. We are fighting prejudice, fighting inequality, fighting racism, uh, sexism, homophobia, all, of, all, all the different forms, anti-Semitism, all, all the different forms of prejudice and hate. I like to think when it comes to those issues, we are all united regardless of our politics. Uh, and I think that's been reflected so far in our parliament. I think the, the downside of it is, I think there still needs to be our recognition that the tone of our politics and the discourse feeds into much of that division and all of us have got a duty to try and change that. But, uh, I mean, is your view that um, all parties suffer from this and that it's, it, it equally happens on the 
no side as it does the yes side? Or do you think that actually it is more on the nationalist side? And, and have you ever raised it with nationalist politicians? You, what part of it, Matt? I, I would want to say that one side is more racist than the other, the, or the, one the, side so, is more sexist. I think there's sexism and racism and homophobia on all sides. Yeah. And, and right across the political divide. One of the frustrations that I have is this pretense we've had for a really long time that kind of implies the left has a problem with anti-Semitism and the right has a problem with Islamophobia. Actually, there's Islamophobes and anti-Semites right across the political divide, all the way from the far left, all the way to the far right. And actually, in many ways, the far left and the far right sometimes emerge when it comes to uh, a lot of the prejudice and hate um, that we see. So, so I think it goes beyond. I think one of the things that is a challenge that has traditionally been more of a problem for the nationalist side is that online hatred and that online othering where somehow, depending on your view on the independence question, you love Scotland more or less or you're more or less Scottish. All of us are just as Scottish as each other. All of us love Scotland as much as each other, regardless of our view on the independence question. I think that should be the basis of our debate rather than trying to other individuals across the country. Obviously, devolution creates uh, strengths and it creates challenges for... Is that your Tony Blair hand movements there, man? Well, I, you know, a little bit, if you want, you know. I mean, that's the thing, Anas, you know, I, you know, I think devolution, by the way, is one of the great achievements of the last Labour government, but yeah, it strikes me that actually also presents a challenge, particularly for a UK-wide Labour leader like Keir Starmer, where, you know, on the one hand, he's saying you can't have Labour front benches going on picket lines. He's going off on one here, isn't he? Well, look, I'm getting to the point, actually. So, <laughs> hey, on the one hand, you've got Keir Starmer saying, look, you know, I, I want to be Prime Minister, right? And he's saying, um, you know, I'm not going to let front benches go on picket lines. Then this bloke's here turning up at Scottish picket lines. I mean, you know, I get what you're doing, but aren't you on some level undermining the bloke that you want to become Prime Minister? I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to Tony if he said that? I would say you really need to tell Matt Ford to work on his Tony Blair impression. <laughs> um, you'd all be much better at it. Um, look, devolution is fundamentally a good thing. The challenge you have is um, any political model is going to fail if you've got bad actors on either side. And at the moment, you've got a UK Tory government that doesn't truly believe in devolution, and you've got a SNP Scottish government that doesn't really believe in devolution either, because independence is not a continuation of devolution, it's an end of devolution. And so you can have the best model in the world if you've got bad actors on either side and bad actors on both sides, it is going to get frayed, it isn't going to work. And at the moment, I don't think we're maximising the opportunities of devolution. So I think we've got to be the champions of, of devolution again. Um, and, and not just devolution in Scotland, actually devolution across the country, where we're pushing power and opportunity out from our parliaments and into communities across the country. That includes within Scotland as well, not just uh, in Westminster. On the other point you raised, um, I'm proud of our relationship with the uh, trade union movement. I know Keir is proud of our uh, relationship with the trade union movement. Um, I'm proud of the fact that we were born out of the trade union movement. I recognise the fact that we are the political wing uh, of that movement. And Keir Starmer's got to spend his time projecting himself as an ex-Prime Minister of this country and being ready to lead this country. Uh, and he has got to have a package of uh, reforms that are about championing workers' rights across the country. But I also think there's a place for us being out there and being part of people's genuine anger they see when we all went out and applauded all these frontline workers during the height of the pandemic, promised to recognise and reward them. We, haven't, we didn't even start the COVID recovery yet. We've gone into a cost of living crisis where inflation is likely to hit 13% and people are seeing a real hit in their living standards. Of course people are going to be angry. Of course they're going to want a fair pay deal. And I think it's important we're out there supporting those workers and listening to that concern and advocating on their behalf. And that's something that I'm not shy about and I'm proud to do and I'll continue to do. But it has Keir said to you, look, Anas, I know you can do what you like, but for God's sake, don't go to another fucking picket line. Uh, no, he hasn't said that. <laughs> we didn't have a conversation about it uh, then, um, and we, uh, it's been mentioned in passing, but we haven't had any kind of detailed conversation about it um, since. I think it's important to be out there. And I think the other important point to make is, we know the game the Tories are going to play. The Tories are going to go into the next election campaign and they're going to say workers or trade unions, don't even talk about workers, they're going to say trade unions want to wreck our country and wreck our economy when actually it's the Tory government that's wrecking our country and wrecking our economy. We know they're going to want to say Labour's going to take us back into the European Union 
Now, I want us to have as close a relationship with the European Union as possible, but we shouldn't be shy about saying a UK Labour government is going to work in the national interest when it suits us with the European Union to benefit our trade, to benefit our economy, to benefit our society and our public services. And we know they're going to say Labour's going to do a dirty coalition with the SNP and we shouldn't be afraid of saying... A dirty coalition? That's what what they're going to say. No ifs, no buts, no deals with the SNP. We should be robust in our own argument and what we believe in and not have this defensive crouch because of how the opponents are going to attack us. We should be pointing at the toys and saying, you said there was going to be chaos we voted for a Labour government. You have given us 12 years of chaos... You've uh, divided our country. You pretend to be the great Scottish Unionist Party when in actual fact you've, you've destroyed the bonds, many of the bonds across our country. You're taking us backwards. Our economy's gone backwards. Our living standards have gone backwards. Poverty is on the rise. Our public services are weaker than they've ever been before. And in the face of that, we're going to offer people hope. We're going to offer people unity. And we're going to demonstrate to them how we change our country together by building on all of us, not on us versus them. We should be positive about that. So when Liz Truss said... Not just that Nicola Sturgeon was an attention seeker, but they should ignore Nicola Sturgeon. You saw the whole full of people really gobble that down and, and rapturously applaud it. Some people have said, well, when Liz Truss says ignore Nicola Sturgeon, what she's actually saying is ignore Scotland. Do you agree with that? Uh, no, I don't. And I, no politician should pretend they are the country. Uh, Boris Johnson was not Britain. He isn't Britain. Nicola Sturgeon is not Scotland. She never has been and she never will be. And neither will any future political leader. Um, and I think it's important to differentiate that. So um, I've mentioned the point about the attention seekers already. Um, and every politician is open to criticism. I get criticised all the time. Tory leaders will get criticised all the time. Nicola Sturgeon should be willing and be able to be criticised all the time as well. I think the big flaw that Liz Trust made was, um, and they won't see it this way, is it was all about red meat for the supporters. So speaking in that language gives red meat to the Tory base and it allows Nicola Sturgeon to throw red meat at the SNP base as well. And all that does is entrench the divisive politics so we don't talk about ideas, we talk about personalities. When in actual fact, I don't want Nicola Sturgeon ignored. I don't want Liz Truss ignored. I don't want Rishi Sunak ignored. I want them held to account. I want us to be talking about what they're doing, the decisions they make, the negative impact it's having on our country, and then to talk about what we would do positively different. And I think if we do that, we can change our politics in the process. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Do you put your head in your hands when you see that? Because at the moment, we do have a Conservative government at the UK level. You're trying to keep Scotland in the Union, and the person who the odds look like is going to be the next Prime Minister saying, ignore the elected leader that Scotland chose. She's making your job harder, isn't she? Well, I, she, I think she's, she's making it harder for a UK that's led by the Conservatives. And um, I think we have to expose that. I mean, this is a Conservative party that wants to pretend that they are the great defenders of the United Kingdom. And they love the United Kingdom so much that they thrust upon us a Brexit debate that pulled our country apart. They thrust upon us the fallout of the Brexit referendum result that meant years of instability and chaos. They thrust upon us uh, Theresa May. And by the way, Theresa May looks like, you know, Nelson Mandela compared to (laughs) Boris Johnson now. They thrust upon us uh, Theresa May And then they thrust upon us the person that's probably been least fit to be Prime Minister in the history of our country. They gave us a charlatan, a cheat, 
a liar in Boris Johnson and said that was the best we had for the United Kingdom. So there has to come a point where people recognize that these people aren't the great defenders of the United Kingdom. They are the biggest threat to the United Kingdom. And the sooner we boot the lot of them out, the better for the UK and the better for every part of the United Kingdom. And that's one great answer of how we, how we try to pull down support for independence and a referendum and change our country in the process. Uh, Keir Starmer's been in town this week. He's, he's done a few shows and he was at the Tattoo the other night. Did you guys meet up when he was up here? I did. We actually went to the Tattoo together. And that was incredible. I mean, I never expected the... I don't know if anyone's been to the Royal Military Edinburgh Tattoo uh, before, but I was expecting it to be uh, really... Um, not as modern as it was, <laughs> not as diverse as Such it was. Such a politician's way of putting it. Honestly, you thought it was going to be boring and racist. Your, your, words, your words, not mine. And honestly, this, this celebration of diversity and the changing not just of the UK, but actually of the world was incredible. So I would recommend to anyone to please uh, go and watch the Royal Military Edinburgh tattoo and, and be part of celebrating that diversity. Still got a long way to go, but a great recognition of that. Because I've, I've always... At first, I didn't want to go. I mean, would you ever think there was going to be gangster rapping at a Royal Military Edinburgh tattoo? I didn't know there was gangster rapping. There is. Tell you, there's, rap, there's rapping <laughs> at the Royal Military Edinburgh tattoo. That's incredible. I just thought it was basically a sort of outdoor last night of the proms, which I would still go to, you know. I, I would like to go Honestly, to Honestly, it night. reminded me more of the Olympics opening ceremony than it did the way you're describing it. It was, okay. that, it was that incredible. So it's designed by Ramonas to uh, celebrate a load of London-based It was actually designed by... The creative director was a guy, and he was introduced by the, um, the military chief that was there doing the introductions uh, at the end of the show, by a guy that is a Johnny Depp tribute act. He literally dresses <laughs> and creates himself in terms of his goatee and his hairstyle as Johnny Depp, it was very strange. Yeah. Despite that, the show was brilliant. I'm not getting into the Johnny Depp trial, but I'm just, yes, I'm just, just saying he was, he was very much a Johnny Depp look-alike look we'll the there. creative director. We should leave it there. And there's a fly past and everything at the end, is there? Missed it, because it was fog that night. Scottish weather, might have you not noticed? But hang on, does that mean they didn't do it, or it happened but you couldn't see it? They didn't do it. Oh, right, OK. There's not a joke there. They, no, no, no. <laughs> sometimes the way you say it, I'm never quite you, sure. The way you pause there made me uncomfortable as well. <laughs> so they didn't do it. Okay. But it, well, on, genuinely, it was incredible. And I know we we kind of have this kind of cultural kind of you know we don't really like, or some people don't really like celebrating that side of our culture. What side? Actually, in terms of you know Britishness and because okay. it was a, a, a celebration of uh, the the jubilee as well and. Uh, and there was actually a real recognition at, towards the end of it um, of the, the battle in Ukraine and uh, of the role of President Zelensky. It was genuinely right. very, very touching, very moving, and a very modern, diverse way of, of talking about the United Kingdom and our role in the world. And I think there's real lessons politically for us in that as well. And were you and Keir sat next to each other? He was sat just in front of me and I could see he was getting into the music just like I was. I had to, I had to resist the temptation of dancing, actually. It was that good. <laughs> but you're sitting in the royal box at the Royal Military Tattoo and everyone is very serious. And I'm sitting there trying to bob and get into a little bit. And I was like, no one else is dancing or bobbing here at all. Cure was, he was getting into it. So he had better seats than you? We were, we were both in the Royal Military, but, you know, a future Prime Minister, he should get a good <laughs> But a future First Minister should also... Well, when I'm First Minister, I'll sit in that seat. How about that? So who else was in the Royal Box? Were there any Conservative politicians there? So the interesting thing is this, is I was doing the, um, the Ian Deal programme, him and Jackie Smith, uh, and they, were, they did this, at least they sold us this way, that they wanted to do a series at the Fringe where they got people who were bitter political opponents and made them share the stage together. Lovely. So I did this show with uh, Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, <laughs> and I turned up to the Royal Military Tattoo, and who have they sat next to me? Douglas Ross. <laughs> and the first thing he says to me is, great, I've got to spend the rest of my day with you as well. <laughs> and I thought, he really didn't go with the spirit of that programme in the early in the day. Do you guys get them, you and Douglas Ross? To be honest, it's not, I said this to Ian Deal on the show, I mean, one of the good things about the show was he actually got political leaders talking to each other. I think one of the really sad things in Scottish politics is how antisocial 
and how difficult some of those private moments are between leaders in Scotland. What often happens is during the TV debates last year, it was me and Willie Rennie being really cheerful and happy and with each other and with everyone else, and everyone else kind of not wanting to talk at all. Even off stage? Even off stage, and that's continued into this parliament. Because we as leaders often have to be in rooms together. For example, when the Queen does a state opening of the parliament and we all have to be together and then we get taken out to meet the royal family, or when we were doing COVID briefings together, and genuinely, it's, it's me and Willie Rennie, or now me and Alec Cole Hamilton, doing some of the wisecracks and being quite light, and everyone else being really, really serious. And it's really unfortunate, because I think one of those things is, you can disagree, bitterly disagree, on politics. You can even hate um, you know, what some people stand for, how they campaign, but that doesn't mean you have to dislike and hate each other as individuals. And I think being able to talk as human beings is actually really important, because we're all doing a job that is not normal. Most people would think we need our head examined for doing it. All of us have a massive impact on our families for the jobs we're doing. And all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have dark moments where it impacts on our own mental health. So there is some common cause there, but for it to be so divided and bitter, I think is really, really unfortunate. I think, uh, regardless of who people vote for, I think even supporters of Nicola Sturgeon would be surprised to hear that. I think they might presume that she was a bit warmer behind the scenes. Even with you. Well, the, the last time there was a full conversation, like I, like I talked to I talked to them all, so I'm I'm, I'm warm with all the political leaders, um, and with all the um, journalists and hosts in terms of like if we're doing TV debates, etc. Because I just believe you should always be with other people how you'd expect them to be back with you. Um, so you know I'm I'm nice and chatty to, to everyone, um, but the last time we had when there was like a proper full conversation. Um, was was actually when the Queen was doing the state opening of Parliament. And it started, Nicola Sturgeon turned up when she was really angry because Douglas Ross had suggested that she was going to retire soon. And so the two of them then decided to put a bet on who was going to outlive the other. Um, so well, that, but so surely the, in terms of political career. Political career, yeah, outlive each other. So there's a 50 quid bet between the two of them. And then me and Alec Cole Hamilton were kind of just watching this, thinking, what the hell is going on here? We then got uh, lined up for the, um, the Queen coming in for the state opening of Parliament. And uh, I was, so it was myself, then it was Lorna Slater, and then it was Alec Cole Hamilton. And uh, we didn't, I didn't realise the mics were on. And this was being recorded in the live feed. And what is it with Scottish Labour politicians? I know, it's terrible, honestly. <laughs> And Alec Cole Hamilton was talking about the rise of the Canadian Liberal Democrats, or the Canadian Liberals and the success of Justin Trudeau. And I said to him, and they caught this, I'm making it, the problem for you, Alec, is you're more Justin Bieber than Justin Trudeau. <laughs> and it got picked up on the mic and it was in the papers the next day, which was, that made the small talk a bit more difficult for a day. So how do you feel about the Queen then? Not just as an individual, but as the head of that institution. Are you a monarchist? Look, I, look, I'm not. I wasn't. I didn't grow up being a natural uh, monarchist. I um, I recognised public service, of course, as an element of public service, but it didn't quite sit right with me in terms of uh, being the model it was. But I, but I actually think there is a real connection that people have emotionally with with the Queen. I think that image of the Queen, particularly during COVID, when she was sat alone um, at the funeral. Uh, when Prince Philip's Hadley uh, passed away, I think was a real image that people right across the country, whether they were royalists or not, could really feed into and, and had an emotional attachment to. And um, I think that is something that we should celebrate and recognise. Uh, and I'm not one that's certainly campaigning for scrapping the monarchy. But it's tricky, isn't it? Because Labour people are, by principle, against the hereditary principle, whether it's in the House of Lords, hereditary peers, or even in work, you know, meritocracy is what underpins Labour values, and yet I understand that Labour people are also patriotic, some of them. I always find it, not odd, but I'm always surprised by how many Labour people actually like the monarchy. Look, I think you, you've got to recognise public service, and you, you've got to recognise that that is uh, an individual that has dedicated her life to, to that public services and has... Um, made sacrifices. Uh, people will look at the wealth, of course they will. They will look at the pomp and ceremony, of course they will. But everyone is human at the end of the day and there will be some really challenging times within that. Uh, but I would much rather we went into an election campaign not with a big story about the, the, the monarchy being the big choice in framing an election campaign, 
but actually how do we change our economy, how do we reform our public service, how do we get decency back into our politics. There are huge, huge challenges that we've got to confront in the next election campaign, next two election campaigns, both in a UK context, but also in a Scottish one, uh, and we've got to be at the forefront of making that case. There's a kind of perception around, isn't there, even if you don't like the monarchy, people kind of have grown to like the Queen almost just for the sheer length of service. Once she goes, and let's say it's Prince Charles or Prince William, maybe people's attitude towards the monarchy changes. Now, obviously, the monarchy, one thing it knows how to do is evolve... Prince Charles is very funny, though. <laughs> is he? You, you wouldn't know this, but Prince Charles... I'm not sure you're allowed to tell private conversations. Are you allowed to tell private conversations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you allowed to so, so, uh, you know, so Prince Charles is with the Queen when they came for the state opening of the Parliament. And he said, you're more like Justin and, uh, Bieber. So, he, so, he, so he's shaking hands <laughs> and, and he says to me, oh, you're the dentist, right? And I said, that's right, I'm happy to be of service at any time, uh, your, your Highness. And he goes, perhaps for the Duchess. And he pointed at Camilla. <laughs> and and I, thought that, I thought that was really funny. I thought that was really funny. And then, before, and then before, yeah, he pointed to Camilla and goes, perhaps for the Dutch. I thought that was quite funny. And then the, and then the night before... And did, um, what did she do at that point? She just kind of grimaced. Not, 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 uh, she did laugh to me. I'll sell those and, I'm going to be in so much trouble for this because I, I don't think you're meant to tell the private conversations. And then the night before, um, at the, they, they do a um, ceremony the night before where um, the different faiths do a multi-faith service um, just uh, up the road from the parliament. And so he, he comes around and does, um, speaks to people before, and he introduced him. So it was a group of MSPs all standing, and he came over and he went, he went, hello, nice to meet you all. I'm not going to do his voice. And um, he went, um, I'm nowhere near how they portray me on Netflix. <laughs> and I thought that's a really interesting way of how to describe yourself, isn't it? Yeah. That's made me like him. Yeah. And uh, to which my colleague Neil Bibby responded and said, and said to him, very west of Scotland, your ma's not going to be jumping on any planes, is she, like she did in the opening ceremony? <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, I'm not sure an MSP should be saying that to a member of the royal family. Obviously, what also involves in the royal family is a lot of pageantry, and, and people don't really... Some people on progressive wings of politics don't like a lot of the ceremony and the pageantry. I'm not, I don't mind it too much, but obviously this bleeds into other parts of your life because I saw a photo of you at Comic-Con where you dressed up as some sort of ninja or something. I don't know what I the was, exact character I was. I was a demon slayer. All right. Everyone is like, what the hell are they talking about? So Comic-Con... Does anyone know what a Comic-Con festival is? Sad. <laughs> It does sound very happy about it. So a, a Comic-Con yes. festival, for those that don't know, is like there's anime and like all these Japanese cartoons, which my uh, middle son is really, really into. My eldest son is actually in the audience. So big shout out for Adam. Yay! I'll try not to embarrass you, son. <laughs> um, but my, my uh, middle son is really, really into uh, Comic-Con. And I've got this thing with the kids where I think it's important to spend some dedicated time with them individually. So not just take my three boys out together, but I try and every now and then just some dedicated time, just me and one of them alone will go and do something. So I said to my middle son, I'll do whatever you want. And he says, okay, I want you to go to the Comic Con Festival with me in Glasgow. And he got my costume. He, I was, and Cheeky Bugger got me an extra large costume, <laughs> by the way, that's a, which we had to return. And then, so he dressed me up as a demon slayer. Okay. So I had the like a vampire type black collar uh, had the bandana, had the pinky finger, had three blades on my three fingers, and a, a necklace. I went down to Comic Con, and thankfully, because I was looking so ridiculous, no one recognised me. <laughs> but after I posted it, I got lots of messages saying, "Were you that weirdo with the Demon Slayer at the uh, <laughs> at the Comic Con?" But it was great fun. A bit disconcerting some of it, but it was great fun. Well, well, okay, so firstly, Comic Con. I've never been to one. But it's like a sort of big um, expo, isn't it, for yep, fans like of shows anime, like... Anime, yeah. like Doctor Who. Gaming. The one I went to wasn't like Doctor Who okay. and stuff like that. Star it was, Wars. It was all like Naruto, Pokemon, Demon okay. Slayer, all this Japanese uh, cosplay. Okay, it sounds less nerdy than I thought it was. I thought it was like a load of guys who went to get Doctor Who. There was lots of middle-aged and older men dressed up like in 
I'm still young, but I'm not. Am I, am I middle-aged? I'm only 39. You're nodding in the audience. I'm middle-aged. I, I know who you are, Susan. I'm going to get you for that. Um, and um, and yeah, so there was lots of sweaty older men, which I found a bit disconcerting. But apart from that, it was great. Okay, but you said it was a bit. Dis what, what what was disconcerting? There's uh, there's a bit of an adult theme to the uh, cosplay that I, most of the kids didn't really get. But I, but there is an adult <laughs> section later in the day, apparently, which mm. was a bit strange. And did you and Douglas Ross enjoy it? <laughs> <laughs> we do VR cosplay all the time. Um, uh, so what sort no. of adult? Violence or sex? I think a bit of both. A, a Comic Con? Later on in the Comic Con, yeah. And that's sort of around the place when you're there. So it, it wasn't really around the place, but, but because the, the way it was kind of... Uh, there's lots of market stalls, and so you could tell there was products that they would bring out later in the day when it was the adult oh section. How many did you You'd buy? You'd love it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, stop pretending your house is full of them. <laughs> it seems odd that that's part of a thing that seems aimed at young people. Yeah, very strange. I mean, I was... It was an eye-opener, actually. Okay, and do you... <laughs> in a good way or a bad way? Any bad way. Okay. Well, I've never asked you about being a... He's trying to get me in trouble here, isn't he? Well, I'm not. I'm just interested as to whether you thought it was positive or negative. But um, I was not planning to ask you about what it's like being a father and your approach to it, but what's it like <laughs> being a father of three boys in the world of 2022 when there is, it sounds like, sexualised stuff in the mainstream? And what's your approach to um, that with your boys? It's, it's funny because, like, you... You can't help but think about how your what your own relationship with your own father was like, and how you th you thought they parented or they continue to parent, and then you try and copy the things they think worked, and you try really hard to correct the things that that didn't work, and I think that kind of influences a hell of a lot how you are as a parent. So um, I'm not going to pretend I'm the most hands-on parent, but. Um, I am very, very affectionate with them. Um, I hug them and kiss them loads, even at the school gate. Um, even my almost-to-be 14-year-old gets a kiss every morning, hates it, um, makes me want to do it even more. And, um, you know, I'm very, very, very affectionate with them. Um, and I always worry. I've, said that, I've told this story before, but my greatest fear in life is that my kids don't think I love them when they grow up. And so I'm, I'm constantly telling them how much I love them to the point that it makes them sick. Um, so maybe having a negative effect on them now. And then you get really protective of them, obviously, because, you know, uh, political children have to create a new normal for themselves. Um, and that, that, I think, probably clouds a lot of their upbringing, the way they, they think about things. And, and so that, that's a challenge is how do, you, how do you not get this new normal? So, you know, so, you know, most kids don't have to think about their parents' security. They don't have to think about their own security. Um, that's something that we've had to think about quite a lot um, at a nursery level, all the way to them now being in primary school and two now going into secondary school. Um, so that, that, that part is challenging and quite emotional, actually. And is that just about being any politician's son, or, or is there also a, a racial element to that? Um, probably any politician's uh, child um, for, for those that are probably in the more higher profile, um, but there is, of course, a, a racial element to it um, as well. Uh, like my, I've told the story before about the day that Adam discovered uh, racism, um, you know, my my, kid, my other two kids are the same. You know they've discovered racism at a very young age, uh, which is really really hard uh, to take. And then you know there's always a um, religious or racial element to a lot of the abuse or threats that come in. But all you can do is try your best to to guard them and protect them from it. And what about I mean what about the stuff that's not about being a politician's child or or being a politician's children about the stuff that they can see online and. At Comic Con, the things that they're exposed to. I mean, obviously, it's, I don't have children, so when I'm travelling around, there are so many things that I probably miss. But if I had children and was more aware of it's a the sorts of things time, that are on adverts. But, but Matt, it's a completely different time. Like, like, our time as kids was so different from our parents' time, and our kids' time is so different from ours. Like, 
we were never stuck on devices all the time trying to get their head out their iPhones and their, you know, their iPads or off these apps is an absolute bloody nightmare. Um, but it's a constant dilemma. They're always on YouTube. You worry about what's the filtering on the YouTube. Now, luckily, they're very, very sensible. But let's be honest, there comes a point in their life where they no longer want to be sensible. And, and you've, you've got to worry about that side of it. But what was different is when, when like, like, I was never, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with my dad now in terms of the age profile I am and the age profile he is. But growing up, we were never friends with our parents. You've now got to be friends with your kids as well as being their parents. And that is a really difficult balance sometimes. What, because you're really you... cheeky, but honestly. Yeah, but you're cheeky. Really cheeky. I know they get it from me and then I moan about it. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and were you a cheeky child? I don't think I was. So, so I, I, I think I've developed a cheek as I've got older. Um, but I like to think it's more comedy value cheek rather than just being a cheeky shite like my son is. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're, we're on, I'll tell you a story. I mean, yeah. I'm going to regret telling this story, right? But, you know, a lot of people often say, you know, he was, his parents had decided he was going to go to politics from birth. About you. And all the, yeah, absolutely. And I always say back to people, if my parents honestly planned to put me into politics from birth, they would have never called me an ass. Right? <laughs> I mean, that, 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 is, that is not a good name for anyone in politics. And so, you know, I, I got jokes about that when I was at school, uh, secondary school, university, now in politics. And it's got to the stage now where I was on holiday with the kids, getting them T-shirts, and uh, Adam says to me, and I'm calling you out for this, Adam, by the way, and uh, he says to me, oh, Dad, you should get this one. And I looked at it, and I goes, why? And he goes, there's a donkey on it, and you are an ass. <laughs> <laughs> when your own kids are taking the piss out of your name, then you know things have gone really bad. I mean, that's, that could have been a lot worse. He said a lot worse, but I just can't say <laughs> Just to come back to uh, the constitutional question. Yep. What is the best thing for Labour or anyone who doesn't want Scottish independence to happen to do? Is it to say, not ignore it as an issue, but let's talk about other stuff. Is it to say, um, not now? Is it to actively engage with it and say, well, what currency would we use? What about pensions? Which of those three options is the optimum, do you think? Look, I think, I think it's a, it's a, a difficult um, judgment call. But I think the challenge you have is in the frame of COVID, we all agreed right across the political divide at the height of the pandemic that actually politics needed to change and the way we operated in terms of government needed to change to get us through that crisis. And, and we, we all made the promise that we would do the exact same way through the COVID recovery and that clearly didn't happen. So. Take the example, Nicola Surgeon was asked directly in the last TV debate, if someone wants you to continue to lead us through the recovery, doesn't support independence and doesn't want a referendum through the recovery, what should they do? And she said, her words, they should vote for me, safe in the knowledge that the recovery will be my priority. We haven't started the recovery yet and already we have this campaign for a referendum and campaign for independence. We've now gone from that massive challenge around COVID and COVID's not gone away, but we've we're through the worst of it. We didn't even start the recovery and we're now full blast into what is a, a cost of living crisis that I think is almost of the scale uh, of the COVID in terms of uh, a national emergency. Uh, yes, it's not as serious in terms of public health. It's not this, that acute risk of life that there was from COVID. But do I think lives will be lost if we don't address the cost of living crisis? Yes. Are we seeing the biggest set in living standards since the Second World War? Yes. Could that get exponentially worse? Absolutely. And in the face of that, are we honestly saying that instead of spending millions of pounds to get people through this crisis and help them pay their bills, we instead want political parties to spend millions of pounds putting leaflets about a constitutional question through people's leaflets? I don't think people would forgive us for that because genuinely, whether you voted yes or no, whether you voted leave or remain, your bills are going up and you're worried about the impact that's going to have on your family. And I want us to concentrate on that and get an answer to that. That's not to say we should never discuss the constitutional debate. And that's not to say Scotland doesn't have a, a right to talk about these issues. Of course it does. But people right now, even many people who support independence, even many people who want a referendum at some point, 
in the next five, 10 years are really worried first and foremost about the cost of living crisis and would expect their politicians and their governments to put that as the focus so people literally don't have to worry about putting food on the table for their kids. And what if the Scottish government says, whatever goes on with the High Court, we're going to run an advisory referendum? What is the best thing to do if you're in your position? Do you, would you tell people to boycott it and say, delegitimise it, or is it best to try and get out your side of the vote? So I think in fairness to the Scottish government, and I think we should always, you know, in, in criticising, we should always, you know, recognise when you know, they're, they're, they're taking a more balanced approach. Now, I don't think they're taking the right approach in terms of wanting a referendum right now, but do I think it's right to establish the legal basis of any referendum? Yes. So let, let's establish what the legal basis of any referendum should be, but let's not ignore that the timing of any referendum is also important in terms of the context, the consequence, uh, the impact it's going to have on the country. And I can't see any situation in which, if the UK Supreme Court said the referendum was illegal, that you could credibly have a referendum in that context um, led by the Scottish Government as some kind of, you know, illegal referendum. I just couldn't see that happening. And, and I don't think Nicola Sturgeon would want that to happen. I actually don't think she wants a referendum at all right now, if I'm honest. Um, I think it's more a strategy about having something to say in a UK general election. And that's why they're talking about this de facto referendum rather than it being genuinely about trying to win independence. And what's your analysis of her as an opponent then? Obviously, she's formidable. She's, you know, wins elections with landslides and majorities that even Tony Blair, in terms of a relative, you know, to, to the size of the country, could, could only dream of. Uh, do you get the sense that her um, strategy is changing? Uh, having faced her at close quarters, do you get the sense that she's looking for an exit yet? I mean, it, it would seem odd for her to be... Pure, and I realise I say this from a distance, <clears throat> given that she's so popular, and I understand all the problems she faces, I mean, if you were her, you'd be, I, I would be tempted to keep going, but I don't know whether, so having observed so, you, so you in, agree in with that. In terms of the popularity, you talked about the popularity stats earlier on. People underestimate how significant a challenge the last Scottish Parliament election was when we were in the height of the pandemic. And Nicola Sturgeon's approval ratings in that election campaign were at plus 53 and fast forward 12 months, it's now around plus 12. So that's a significant drop in terms of the height of the pandemic to where we are now. But again, credit where credit is due. Is Nicola Sturgeon an effective politician? Yes, she is. Um, is she someone that has uh, proven to be a successful politician? Yes, she has. Has she won elections? Of course, and we of course have to give credit where it's due. Uh, even in football, you know, if your opponent is winning leagues, you, you, want, you want to be winning those leagues, so you've got to give credit where, it, where it's due. Maybe not if you're a Nottingham Forest fan, you're not going to win much leagues if you're a what Nottingham you, Forest you fan. What, you the Premier League but, now? Come I mean, on! You, I mean, you won one game, 1-0, one and you think you're going to be Premiership champions, but that's, a, that's another story altogether. I think um, you uh, but, have a soft spot for Forest. Of course, yeah. because of you, I generally do have a soft spot for Forest. So I think everyone does, does not I, I hope, I hope they stay up. I hope they stay up. Um, so, so give credit where it's due. Okay. Um, I'm not going to get involved in the will she stay, won't she stay, is she going to go do something else, is her heart still in it? Um, I think there is, a, I think there is an, an arrogance starting to come through from the um, SNP government and actually many of the things that Labour often got accused of when, having, when we'd been in power for 15 years was they're getting complacent, they're getting arrogant. Um, I think we're starting to see a lot of that now come through with the SNP. Um, but I want, to be, I want to win because we're ready to win, not waiting for someone else to decide they, they want to leave the stage. That's for Nicola Sturgeon to decide on the SNP. I'm more focused on about the Labour Party being in a position to win. And as this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, before uh, we bring this to a close, would you go to Comic Con again? I mean, what, what outfit are you going to wear next year? <laughs> I, I would go to uh, Comic Con again because my son absolutely loved it. But what I want to do is I want to go to the big one in London. That looks incredible. Because this one was more Japanese anime. I want to go like when it's like superheroes and Marvel and I can be Batman, he can be Robin. You know, and that, 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 that kind of thing. Or, or, or I'll be Superman and he can be Thor or something like that. I think that'd be much more fun rather than dressing up as a Naruto character and as a, a demon slayer. The thing is, when you said Batman and Robin, I didn't picture you as like Christopher Who would you Nolan. dress up as? I pictured if you, you went as... To, um... If you went to a comic con, yeah. which character would you dress up as? And why? And you can't say Tony Blair. Well, if it's about, I don't know. I'm not into that sort of thing. 
Neither am I. I still win. I like football. I'd go as Harry Kane. You... <clears throat> you Jack Greenish. You would go to a Comic-Con dressed as Harry Kane. I don't know. I'd, I'd just go in or my Jack normal Greenish. clothes. I'd go in my normal clothes because I'm not a nerd. In fact, I wouldn't go. I'd go to so the Weather Springs my, over the road so and wait for my, you. You're calling my son a nerd? That's terrible. It's different for that children. As a man about to enter his fifth decade, it's shameful. Are you, are you almost 50? Well, no, fifth decade. So you'll be 40 soon, won't you? You'll be in your fifth decade. That's true. You're going grey at the sides, you're going bald at the back, and you're hanging around with a load of kids. My, my, uh, my dad went bald at 27, so I've done 12 years yeah. more. So I'm and you know what? Way. He never went to Comic Con. <laughs> Actually, I'll get him to take his granddad next year. That'd be quite funny, wouldn't it? Yes. He could go as, like, a Star Trek character or something like that. <laughs> or something like that. Something Sounds like, that. like you really know so the you, universe. So you would go as Harry Kane or Jack? I don't know. That's a boring well, answer, well, isn't it? What, what, uh, Batman. You'd go as Batman? I don't know, I don't know. Why are you doing this to me? I'm not... But I ask the questions, you make a fool of no, yourself. Remember, last, remember last time I was on your show, I took over the show. Yes, you did, yeah. You're doing it again and, now. Uh, I was doing dentistry on the show. We were doing a bit of dancing. You were woeful at it. But that was shocking. You put out the video of me dancing and you didn't put out the video of you dancing yourself. Of course. That why would I do outrageous. that? outrageous. Because... It, it, I mean, you've got two... I wouldn't even say two left feet. You've got, you've got two something. You've got two... Pillars. <laughs> and your dancing was atrocious, but... Um, Thank you so next much. Time. Well, this has been a pleasure to interview. <laughs> I've got the feeling I might not get invited back on. <laughs> well, let's just see. But anyway, um, Anas, it's been a real pleasure. Thank My you pleasure. so much. Thank you. Before we let Anas go, just to let you know, at the same time next week, I'll be interviewing Joanna Cherry from the SNP. So I'll see if she's ever been to Comic Con um, and what she would dress up as. And... No, she calls that SNP conference. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Ladies and gentlemen, for the one and only, Anasawa! Well, there you go, Anasawa, again, a star turn. Whatever stage I interview him on, whether it's the, the West End of London or a top billing at the Edinburgh Festival, he's always phenomenal. There's one last show at the Edinburgh Festival of the political party, and that's with Joanna Cherry from the SNP on Monday, the 22nd of August. Of course, Joanna, not just famous for being an SNP member of Parliament, she's a QC, and she was crucial with Gina Miller in ensuring that the UK Parliament had a say over what that final Brexit deal was. So she played a leading role um, uh, in various constitutional debates um, and legal debates in the last few years uh, and is always very passionate and always uh, brilliant company. So that will be a very special final political party of this Edinburgh Festival. Again, my stand-up show, Clans to the Left to Be Jokes to the Right, is on every night at 8pm at the Edinburgh Festival. And then when we return to London, my word, those guests, 19th September, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel, 3rd of October, Mick Lynch, Mick Lynch, 17th of October, Matt Hancock, 7th of November, David Dimbleby. I'm on the verge of being able to confirm the 14th of November, but until then, I shall uh, let you know that on the 5th of December, my guest is Rachel Reeves. Tickets for all those shows are selling very quickly. So go to mattford.com where you can um, buy them. And I've put a link, as always, in the blurb or in the show notes, depending on what uh, device you listen to, where you can just click and uh, that'll take you through to the website. So thank you so much for downloading this. Thank you to Anas for, again, being such a wonderful guest. Thank you to everyone who's come to these recordings so far in Edinburgh. The Gordon Brown and Anna Solmans have both been superb. The Joanna Cherry one will be absolutely brilliant as well. And I'll see you soon. Ta-ra.